What's going on guys? Jordy Cannell here. Thank you so much for checking out this weekend recap edition of the Bullpen Cart Podcast presented by Thunderblogsports.com. The Oscars, Pebble Beach, college basketball, and some hockey. That is our menu for today's podcast. We got a lot to talk about. It was an awesome weekend of action It was a lot of fun to record. I cannot wait to hear what you guys think. As always, though, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. Search The Bullpen Cart on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter, ThunderBLG. Find us on Instagram, ThunderBlogSports is the handle there. The Bullpen Cart Podcast Facebook group. Search The Bullpen Cart Podcast on Facebook to join there and get a part of the conversation. ThunderBlogSports.com where you can find all of our great vlogs and enjoy this episode guys i hope you enjoy the oscars and here we go welcome to this episode of the podcast i of course am jordy cannell the g-man coming to you with another weekend recap pod Sorry that this one is coming on Monday afternoon. I'm recording this over my lunch break. I was going to try to record it last night with the Oscars. Really get the live reaction there, but the Oscars ended around 11.45 and I needed to wake up for work. So I know I said I was going to have it on Sunday night. And I'm sorry for those of you that were expecting something Monday morning. I know Greg is uh, really giving me a lot of crap. I put put something in the Facebook group that I was going to be recording it. Over lunch, I appreciate all of your patience, but I am excited. This was an awesome weekend of sports, obviously the Oscars, and we're going to start right there. The 92nd Academy Awards were last night, and Parasite swept everything. It was a pretty awesome show. I thought, despite not having a host again, which has been kind of an interesting thing. Last year, obviously, everything with Kevin Hart that happened, people up finding his tweets, uh, that's why there was no host, they couldn't really find anybody. This year they just decided to roll with it again, and they had a number of different people come out. Started with Janelle Monet uh, coming out, doing a Mr. Rogers tribute, and then a number of different tributes to various different movies that came out. But Mr. Rogers, what she started with, had a number of different backup dancers, had Billy Porter come out, there might have been a little bit of a wardrobe malfunction on Janelle Monet's Mr. Rogers outfit, if he caught that right at the very beginning, and she took it with Pure class, grace, in stride, however you want to put it. Um, Then, yeah, like I mentioned, you had a lot of different people either coming out to give a mini monologue, like with Chris Rock and Steve Martin right at the beginning, uh, who actually, they, they did a pretty good job. Nothing really would match what Ricky Gervais did at the Golden Globes, but they, they got pretty close. They were letting everybody have it, which was pretty awesome to see the Jeff Bezos joke Chris Rock makes that he got divorced and is still the richest man in the world was pretty hysterical. He Bezos even seemed to crack a smile. I think it was his son sitting next to him. We thought it was hysterical. Um, but yeah, then throughout the show, they had different celebrities introduce other celebrities to give out the awards instead of just having you know a PA announcer say, ladies and gentlemen, here is... XYZ to present whatever award. It was kind of cool. Some didn't really make sense. Some were fellow cast members, like with the Hamilton crew. Uh, 
and Lin-Manuel Miranda then introduces the movie or the songs that made movies throughout history, which is a very cool retrospective of you know of different clips throughout movies and the songs that made them. They did that for a number of th- for a number of different categories for the mainly the big ones, the, all the acting categories of best supporting actor and actress, best actor actress. Um, and then obviously they do the stuff with, with the best picture movies throughout the night of introducing them. But I thought what was really cool was seeing the various different ways they tried to, to shake things up. They did the, instead of normally showing the process of doing best original score, normally they show the orchestras that make the, you know, the score for a movie, they had the in-house orchestra do it which i thought was pretty awesome and i i mentioned it and i didn't even get to the coolest part of the night that i think anyone that is my age around their late 20s into their 30s after lin-manuel miranda introduces the songs that made movies and they go through it the last one they show and it was a mix between oscar-winning songs and songs that are just famous you know some of the songs that you think of when you think of that movie but the last one they show is eight mile and lose yourself, and then all of a sudden, as they're playing that opening guitar riff of "Lose Yourself," Eminem pops up on stage, and everybody, from people in the crowd to Twitter to the people we're watching the show with—I'm sure you might have had this if you're watching this with a bunch of people—wondering why the hell Eminem is there. If you did not find this out, it's because back in the early 2000s, when Eight Mile came out, Eminem could not be at the Oscars he didn't think that that lose yourself was going to win so he didn't go and he was hanging out with his daughter Haley and obviously this, the song ended up winning so he never performed it he never accepted his Oscar or anything like that so this rectified it now he has performed it for the show but the best part of this was seeing all the different celebrities reacting to this song and Eminem performing and you had the let's call them the millennial age like kelly marie tran is bumping to this you see a number of different people going absolute ape shit for whatever reason billy eilish is rolling her eyes which i get she ends up doing the immemorium and and yeah I, you come on you won all these grammys pay respects to eminem billy eilish but anyway but then martin scorsese does the best ver- uh Visual meme, not verbal meme. Visual meme of OK Boomer, of him basically falling asleep during it and kind of, you know, shocking himself awake. And it was pretty cool to see. I've never seen Eminem live. It's probably the closest thing I'll probably will get to see. But he seemed to really be enjoying it. The crowd really seemed to love it. And let's talk about some of these award winners because it was a pretty cool night. I mean, I mentioned Parasite won a ton of different stuff. Bong Joon-ho, the director of the movie, scooped up Best Original Screenplay, Best Director, Best Picture, and Best Foreign Film, or Best International Film, excuse me, which is, it's historic for a number of reasons. It's the first time that there's been a movie from South Korea even nominated for the for that category. It's the first non-English speaking film to win Best Picture, and he's the first South Korean to ever win Best Director and ever be nominated for it. And this guy, if you'd have missed the Oscars, you missed you missed an absolute legend, our king, 
Bong Joon-ho. This is him right after winning Best Director. Thank you. I, I will drink until next morning. Thank you. Yeah. Our king saying exactly what anybody would have said after winning an Oscar. That isn't, you know, I don't want to sound crass, but isn't completely full of themselves an ego, egotistical maniac like some actors have been accused to. And it kind of brings me to some of the bigger categories. Um, we had, we'll just start with the biggest one of all. Joaquin Phoenix won Best Actor, and his speech was weird. He got up there, and he's done some stuff for PETA, Joaquin Phoenix has, um, you know, for animal rights and everything, and he gets up there and talks a lot about, it, about basically, the process of meat consumption and, you know, stealing milk from mom's base for calves that we stole... And some, a lot of stuff, and he's really rambling through it, and I don't know, I, I know he's a method actor, and I, he won for Joker, which Greg and I talked about a little bit Thursday, I've talked about it a few times on the pod. It's a pretty dark movie, and that character is really dark. If you haven't seen this movie, you probably should just see it, just to say, you, you know, if you're a movie connoisseur, you should go see it. Um, you're not missing much in whatever we're calling the DCEU now, because I don't even think it's technically a part of it. But, I don't know, so the reason why I'm saying this is, I don't know if he was still in that that mode. Like, sometimes you see Jared Leto does that. He's another big character actor. Daniel Day-Lewis does a pretty good job by the time award season comes around. But apparently, like, for the months before and after he films a movie, he's in character. So for, you know, the better half of a year, Daniel Day-Lewis is Abe Lincoln or is Bill the Butcher from Gangs of New York or, you know, and so on and so forth. But, um, yeah, he was really weird. And that speech was three minutes of some rambling, some mumbling. And I don't want to, I don't want to belittle his, him trying to talk about his brother, River Phoenix, who you know died, unfortunately, when he was, I think, 17 or 18. And, you know, Joaquin Phoenix, it happened 25 years ago, and Joaquin Phoenix still has a tough time talking about it. Grief is a hell of a thing, and I really don't want to belittle that. So maybe that's part of what it was. So if that's what it was, I apologize. Um, you know, that was a nice touching end to it, but the first two and a half minutes was, it was something. And then we got Renee Zellweger winning Best Actress for her role as Judy Garland. Greg and I both talked about this on Thursday when we previewed it. Uh, I did not see Judy. I don't really know many people who did. It's similar to when Natalie Portman was um, Jackie O, Jackie Kennedy, uh, Jackie Onassis Kennedy, and I think the movie's just called Jackie. But this was a couple years ago. She got nominated for Best Actress. The movie apparently was okay. She was really good in it. Um, it's the common the common critique of going back to this year's movies that I heard about Bombshell, that the acting's really good, the story's kind of tough, and the movie's just not great, and which is why it's not nominated for Best Picture. Apparently this Judy movie is very similar to that. But Renee gets up there, and man, that was also really weird. She kind of, she mumbled through a lot of it. It's kind of awkward. It's almost like she was just stage shy, which is ironic because she was in Chicago, you know, movie musical, and plays an actress in that movie. So, I, yeah, I don't know. But uh, Brad Pitt got up there. A lot of people are, are he won the first award of the night for Best Supporting Actor for... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which was one of my favorite movies in 2019. Uh, a lot of people, though, were like, oh, he got political because he made a comment about the you know impeachment stuff of Congress not giving people the time of day. But, I mean, whatever. It was a quick 
quick jab. I almost thought of it as just Brad Pitt being Brad Pitt. Uh, but I was happy for him. I thought that movie... I thought it might have been able to win Best Original Screenplay for Quentin Tarantino. I thought it was a really good movie. That obviously ended up going to our man, Bong Joon-ho. And, you know, you know, go for him there. There was a lot of really good movies that were out there in that, in that category. And I, I was surprised by both of the writing ones. I'm happy for Bong Joon-ho. And I'm happy for Taika Waititi, who took home Best Adapted Screenplay for Jojo Rabbit. Um, but I definitely got those both dead wrong. I thought Quentin... They really seem to like when he writes his, or he always writes his movies, but when he comes out with a new movie, and it's it's a movie that, or he's a guy that usually gets rewarded as such. I was really selling myself that Greta Gerwig might get the Little Women nod for the Oscar just because of how great of an adaptation it is. We were talking about it at the party that we had last night here, that it's the fourth adaptation of the movie, and by far, the or the book, and by far the most well-received version of it. So I thought maybe it would get it. Maybe The Irishman is a way to give a nod to Scorsese, especially because Bong Joon-ho ends up winning Best Director. Um, I didn't think Joker should, just because it was a deviation from the comics. I know that sounds almost comic book nerdy, but it wasn't really based on an actual story. It was based on a mix of different Joker backgrounds, from the comic book, so there was no real story that it was adapting. It was almost an original screenplay than it was adapted, so I would have been upset there. But anyway, good for it there. Um, Toy Story 4 ended up taking on Best Animated Feature. I mean, good for Pixar. We talked about the stats there. Uh, and I'm, I'm forgetting Laura Dern taking home Marriage Story. Apparently, I still need to see that, and apparently it's a one-and-done type of film because of just how tough that, uh, that can be, <laughs> watching a divorce but apparently Laura Dern is absolutely fantastic. The number of different scenes they showed of her in the movie, she just seems to be overpowering throughout it. And I, I want to go back and watch this. Um, I think, though, the, the other story before I move on to talk about from this is kind of the, the, the shutout that gets thrown at 1917. It doesn't really get much. It gets a couple technical awards of sound mixing, and cinematography. You figured it would probably get cinematography because of how the movie was shot. Greg talked about it on Thursday. Made to seem like it's all one long tracking shot. So you figured it would probably get there. But maybe you thought it might get a couple el a couple other things. Maybe it gets costume design. Maybe it gets... Uh, or no, it wasn't even nominated for that. Excuse me. Um, hair and makeup is what, is what probably wasn't going to there. Good for Bombshell winning that award, by the way. Given how... Given how damn close that Charlize Theron looked looked like Megyn Kelly in that movie, you thought maybe it gets production design, maybe it gets you know all of those technical categories. But they really mixed you know really mixed in all the different best you know best picture nominees. So great there. And the last one I want to talk about the great Sir Elton John taking home best original song from one of my favorite movies that did not get nominated in Rocket Man. I'm gonna love me again. He performed up on stage, and he and Bernie Taupin, which the movie's about. If you've not seen Rocket Man, it's about the story of Elton John and his friendship with Bernie, and you know, really his whole career, their whole career, because Bernie Bernie was the lyrics writer, and Elton wrote the music and performed it, obviously. And it was great to see them get up there because Elton John, we realize he's been nominated for four Oscars. This is his fourth and his second win. 
Now it sounds like oh, 50% clip. You know, that's still pretty solid. What you don't realize, and what we didn't realize before we looked this up, that he his other his other two nominees, he won his first Oscar for Can You Feel the Love Tonight. The other two were both in The Lion King. So he was nominated thrice in the same Oscars for the same movie in 1994 for for The Lion King. So really, he's won in as many opportunities as he's had. And the first time, the deck was really stacked in his favor. But, I mean, I'm very excited to go check out these movies, you know, because I, I mentioned didn't get to as many as I wanted of all the movies that were nominated. I'm definitely going to check out Parasite now because it looks absolutely wild. The scene when they all got up there at the end of the Oscars, Jane Fonda came out and handed out the Oscar, and it looked like they were cutting to her to end it, and the entire crowd is basically yelling for an encore. They wanted Bong Joon-ho to, to say something, but he was letting everybody else, the other producers, the other actors get to say something, which, you know, just a complete class act from him, and he's passing around the Oscars, and then this morning, there's the clip that was coming around where he's having the two <laughs> statues making out, uh, which was absolutely hysterical, so... I gotta go see this movie now. I wanted to anyway. I wanted to maybe check it out yesterday before the show. Um, I ended up going and hitting balls at Five Iron Golf, which just opened up here in Philly. So I ended up doing that. I got outside and got active. But, you know, I'm definitely going to check out Parasite now. But speaking of golf, let's jump over to the AT&T Pebble Beach Open. Pebble Beach Pro-Am, excuse me. Those aren't that aren't too familiar with the tournament itself... It is one of the older tournaments on the PGA Tour, established back in the 30s. And it's it was originally the Bing Crosby Pro-Am. It's always had this Pro-Am aspect to it, where unlike normal tournaments, which cuts the field after 36 holes, top 17 ties get in, because every pro is playing with a celebrity, the amateur part of it, what ends up happening is that there's a cut after three rounds, and it's top 60 in ties. Now, a couple things. Why after three rounds? Because unlike the name might imply, they're not just playing the Pebble Beach, Pebble Beach Golf Links, the course that is world famous, one of the best public courses in the world. They're also playing Spyglass uh, Spy Hill and Monterey Peninsula, which are all a part of the greater Pebble Beach Resort um, all great golf courses, all very highly regarded in the top 100 courses in America. And what happens is that they play each course Thursday, Friday, Saturday. They rotate between the three. You know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago with Torrey Pines, how they play the North and the South. This is three courses, so that's why there's the 54-hole cut. Why 60, though, instead of 70 for the final day? It's not just because there's been 54 holes of golf played, but because... It's not just 60 players, it's 120, because it's a pro-am, you have your partner. So what they end up doing is they still send them off in pairs, but they send them off the front and the back. So Jordan Spieth, for instance, was sent off of the front nine, or off the back nine, to start his final round. He finished on the ninth hole. Now, let's talk about the actual tournament itself, because this was this year was actually pretty exciting. Phil Mickelson came in, as the reigning champion, he's won the tournament five times. Loves playing here. It was a big story that maybe he was going to win his first U.S. Open at Pebble last year. Uh, but he comes in after having a great week overseas over in Saudi Arabia. 
And Phil did not miss a beat. He really seemed to catch fire, literally, after flying halfway across the world. Ends up shooting a 68 the first day, but the big story was Nick Taylor, the Canadian, firing a 63 on Thursday. And Nick Taylor didn't really slow down. He shot a 66 on Friday, a 69 on Saturday to put him into the final group with Phil. And Phil battled his way through this tournament. Phil shot a 64 Friday and then a 67, including back-to-back birdies on the back nine on 13 and 14. And let's take a listen to the audio here. Back up against the slope, into the breeze. This is going to be fun. Are you kidding me? Told you, boys. Bill, you think he hit that second shot in there on purpose? No. (laughs) Player that's better in the business than Phil Mickelson, and he certainly displayed it today. Come on! Back to back. That was going to run all the way to Monterey, but it doesn't matter now. So Phil has himself competing through... Three rounds. Again, won it last year. Just played overseas in the Middle East a week before. This guy is trying to become the first ever professional golfer to win at ages 47, 48, and this would be 49 if he won this tournament. Absolutely outstanding. By the way, his partner is Steve Young. Imagine playing golf with fucking Steve Young and Phil Mickelson. That's what Nick Taylor had to do on Sunday. Taylor comes out firing, and he's having himself a decent day. Phil starts out pretty hot, as does Taylor. And here's Taylor on the sixth hole. He's in the bunker on his third shot, and take a listen. Taylor in that bunker, clean lie? Yeah, lie very good. Just straight downwind here, Matt. Downwind usually gets that ball rolling right towards the hole. Into the hole. Into the hole. Nick Taylor with the third eagle of the day here at six. And all of a sudden, he is telling Phil Mickelson, I'm not going away. In fact, birdie, birdie, eagle, his last three. And at the moment, three clear of Phil. What a stretch of holes for the last hour and a half by Nick Taylor. That is outstanding stuff. So Taylor stealing a page out of Phil's book, making the Sandy, the Sandy Eagle, whatever you want to call it. I'm sure there's actually an official term for it. So apologies to the golf purists out there. But these two were battling. Phil really slows up, though, towards the back end of the front nine. All of a sudden, it seems like Nick Taylor has this big gap, and he really doesn't yield it too much. But in comes Kevin Streelman, American golfer, shot a 60, or 69, 67, 68, kind of hanging around the top 10 there. And he's making some moves. He had an okay front, and his back nine ended up being pretty good. Jason Day was also competing for it. He had himself a really good week, but kind of a a slow weekend. He he was really into contention, and then shot a 75 on the final day after a 70 on on Saturday. So he still ended up in fourth place. But Streelman backdoors his way into second place. Taylor, though, wouldn't go away. He solidified it with a shot on the 17th hole, par 3. You know, Pebble's known for its fifth and seventh holes, seven being the iconic down the hill. There's a ton of water basically surrounding 60% of the green. Uh, But 17 is no slouch itself. 
Taylor put a ball, though, to, like, five feet, taps in, and really solidifies. He ends up winning by four strokes. Canadian guy having himself an awesome week, second PGA Tour win. And now we're moving on. We got the Genesis Open this week. Tigers back in the field out in L.A., where I'm, I'm actually going to happen to be later on this week. I'm flying out there tomorrow. Not going out for the tournament. Sadly, that would be uh, kind of cool to do. But I'm going out for a couple days for a Survivor event, visiting some family as well. And then I'm going out to Phoenix on Thursday morning. Going to play a little golf. Going to go to the Coyotes-Capitals game on Saturday night. Should be a lot of fun. Make sure to follow the Instagram for all of my travel. That does sadly mean this is the only podcast of the week. And we'll circle back on the other housing notes. But just talking more about this tournament. I mentioned Jordan Spieth a little bit and his... Starting on the back nine, he, of all the different golfers that were out there, he and a guy by the name of Maverick McNeely, which sounds like a guy made up in Tiger Woods. But Jordan Spieth ends up shooting a 67, moves himself up 46 spots to to finish T9 with a guy, Lantau Griffin, who, after a few tough weeks for this young guy, Lantau Griffin, he ends up T9 with Jordan Spieth. Jordan Spieth really needed a nice one. He, believe it or not, entered the week 129th in the FedEx Cup points, moved up to 90th. He fell out of the top 50, so he may not make some of those WGC events because that's where that's the pure qualification for it. Uh, but he played well. He shot a 5-under, 67 on Sunday, and you know found, found himself at the top 10. So maybe he's going to catch some heat. Maybe he's going to finally complete the career grand slam maybe win a fourth major who knows but i'm excited to see how the genesis open goes we got tiger we got a lot of big names in the field a lot of people who played this week at pebble coming down to la to play there this is tiger's tournament he hosts it you might remember a couple years ago when he was still kind of figuring out the stuff with his back it was before i think it was either even 17 or 18 that he tries to hit a ball and ends up plopping it short into the water, and he turns around and goes, man, my back must still be screwed up. You know, a couple years later, here we are, Tigers the reigning Masters champion. So I'll be excited to see how that all goes. Uh, we're really starting to get into the thick of things. It is only mid-February, but we're going to get some bigger names. We're about a month away from the players, which is, you know, always going to be fun. I am a fan now of the schedule being a little more condensed. I know that it kind of puts a weird spot of things. Like this year, it was kind of weird that, for one, the President's Cup was so late anyway, being in December. But it'll be very interesting to see the difference between previously two weeks between the Ryder Cup and the FedEx Cup final. And now it'll be closer to a month between the Tour Championship and the Ryder Cup. At least this year, it's in on U.S. soil out at Whistling Straits. Should be pretty fun, but we'll, we'll obviously talk about that as we get closer to it in about seven months. And we got a lot of baseball to talk about. That'll be fun. I'm getting ahead of myself, though, because we got to talk more about this weekend. So, weekend recap podcast. I'm going to do some college hoops. This is something I've wanted to jump into for a couple weeks now, but the Super Bowl, football, hockey, and even the basketball trade deadline, and what's been going on with the Sixers in the NBA have kind of prevented me from really catching up as I wanted to, aside from the cursory following that I've given the NCAA basketball season. But this weekend I found myself watching a number of different games 
And boy, did I pick the perfect Saturday to jump into it. The XFL was underway, so I was flipping around with that. And I don't have enough analysis of the XFL to give you give it a full segment, but I will say this before I really dive into college basketball. The kickoff rule is really cool, and it's hilarious to see names like Cardell Jones be thrown out there and see all of them. Landry Jones was out there too. It's funny to see them have a second life now, but... That's really all I can tell you about the XFL. Because I was watching a lot of college basketball. Watching a lot of golf. But let's talk college hoops. There were some upsets. There were two games, though, that I want to start with and highlight. That had very similar pregame stories. And very... Or very different pregame stories. And very similar runs throughout their games. This is Auburn versus LSU at Auburn. And Duke UNC at UNC. Now, Auburn and LSU both ranked these two teams somewhat of a rivalry. It's not the Iron Bowl. It's not Alabama LSU, but it's kind of that third leg of the of the love triangle, if you want to call it that. Um, LSU, though, on the road, ranked 18th, the underdog, comes out firing. They come out to this huge lead, and it seems like that they're in complete control for about 30 of the 40 minutes of this game. And then Auburn pounces their way back into this game. And yes, that was a Tiger pun of Tiger on Tiger crime. But Auburn has this lead probably by by about, I think at most, nine points in the second half. LSU claws their way back in. Yes, still with the Tiger puns. Auburn cannot make a fucking free throw to save their lives. Overtime is forced. Auburn jumps out to another lead, and the same thing happens. LSU claws their way back from nine points down with about 40 seconds left. It's I think it was a seven-point deficit at that point. Again, Auburn just needs to make fucking free throws to seal the deal here, and they can't do it. LSU completely instituting the full-court press, takes a lead with about 20 seconds left, and then Auburn ends up nailing the teardrop to seal the deal over LSU. They they escape with this win from their pseudo rival, I mean, college basketball rival, we'll call them Alabama. You know, had a, had a, that good year a couple years ago with Colin Sexton, but really, you know, not the the biggest in uh, college basketball names. But yeah, Auburn sneaks away from one. Meanwhile, we got Michigan upsetting Michigan State. Michigan's now 4-4 four and four against ranked teams. Maybe they'll find themselves ranked, adding some nice uh, resume wins for the tournament. Kansas in what seems to be a very low-scoring win over TCU. Now, again, I've not paid too much attention to the Big 12 and what's been going on, just mainly the rankings and, and how it was a revolving door of number one seeds. Now Baylor's had it for a few weeks. So I know that. I, I follow that close enough. Uh, but they only won 60-46. to 46. A nice win over TCU on the road. Kentucky starting to figure their shit out, I think. They'd been a little inconsistent. The two big upsets, though, in the middle slate of the afternoon, Oklahoma taking down West Virginia. West Virginia being a the run-and-gun team of the Big 12, and, and Oklahoma really taking it to them. And then Seton Hall came down here to Philadelphia, to the Wells Fargo Center, and took care of business against Villanova. Seton Hall having an incredible year, and they find themselves now in the 10 spot, up two spots from last week. They actually leapfrogged Auburn. Kentucky now at 12th. The rest of the top 10 remain unchanged. 
And we're getting to that point where we're starting to think about seeding. How is thing, how are things going to go? Maryland's in the top ten. Are they going to figure things out in the Big Ten? They're the top. They're the top ranked Big Ten team right now. Duke and Florida State are playing tonight. But before I talk about, or before I even think about talking about that, the other game I wanted to highlight: Duke UNC. And stop me if I, if you've heard this one before. UNC, the underdog, jumped out to a huge lead. Seemed to be in control for most of the game. Duke claws their way back, or I guess pitchforked their way back if we're going to go into puns. Forces overtime. And then UNC takes a lead. And Duke, with the Duke doink, ends up escaping. Funny how these things all crazily go hand in hand, isn't it? Now... I don't know how this is all going to shake out in the next month before Selection Sunday. We're basically at four plus weeks now. But it is going to be a lot of fun, ladies and gentlemen, to watch how this college basketball season goes. And I mentioned it. We got Duke versus Florida State. Florida State, a team who can just put it to teams. Their defense is a little suspect, but their offense clicks and fires on all cylinders. And, you know, just when you think these programs are in kind of interesting spots of where they've been, you know, Louisville obviously had all the sanctions post Rick Pitino. Florida State has kind of had a weird decade since being pretty relevant at the end of the 2000s. Uh, Virginia is 15-7. and seven. They lost last weekend after winning the national ch- championship. Um, and Syracuse, shout out to Greg, 14-9. and nine probably find them somewhere in there. I mean, the ACC usually gets a ton of bids anyway, but they're finding themselves in a pretty solid position. I watched their game against Duke last week where they ended up losing, but you know that Duke team, with a number of those different players, some returning from last year, some coming in as freshmen. Uh, Alex O'Connell, though, being a, another cornerstone for that team. Uh, I'm very interested in seeing what ends up happening with Michigan and how they're doing because they had had such a hot start. And now they find themselves in kind of a weird spot with the Big Ten. They're five and seven, but they're fourteen and nine. The Big Ten, who knows what's going to end up happening with that? Because they have a lot of teams that are probably going to end up winning twenty games when all things are said and done. And twenty is usually the cusp of being a bubble team, especially if you're in a Power Five conference. And I think it also depends too. Michigan State finds themselves right on the outside of the top 25. Penn State's now up to 13th. Maryland's 9th, like I mentioned. Illinois. Illinois is back in things. They're 22nd. Uh, Iowa's 21st. Rutgers is having a good year. I mean, we could find the Big Ten to be to be that normal like ACC sending 11 teams in type of conference this year. And, and not that the ACC can't do that. Um, I do think where a lot of this is going to run through and and probably the big story, if you need to hear one right now, obviously we have a month to let things shake out, but are the mid-major bubbles. And, you know, like Dayton, for instance, leading the Atlantic 10 undefeated. Rhode Island might be one of those teams that gets talked about as this mid-major with a resume. They're 18-5. and That's a pretty good record, but... You know, do they need to get ranked? Do they need to upset Dayton? Or is it going to be something Dayton comes into the A-10 tournament undefeated and then loses? And all of a sudden, they're taking a spot on the in the uh, on the at-large scene and burst in a bubble. 
Same thing with Gonzaga, because it especially seems like after a couple years where you know, St. Mary's had had a couple good runs and all that sort of stuff, now it really seems like we're back to the usual usual business, if you will, of Gonzaga really having a stranglehold on that conference. And, you know, we'll I guess we'll just have to see what ends up going down. But, you know, they really put it to, to St. Mary's this past weekend with a 90-point victory, and nobody really seems to be... Close. St. Mary's does have twenty wins, but I, I feel like that con- the West Coast Conference is, is one of those is one of those conferences that never really sends that many at large teams. And you know, I don't know. It'll be very interesting to see. I'm going to continue to catch up. So if I did have something that you thought was a pretty bad take, by all means, put it in the comments on the post on the Facebook group or in the comments on ThunderBlogSports.com or just tweet at me. Tell me I'm a complete idiot. Tell me I'm a complete mush. Or even better, say that you have a guarantee for me in betting, especially a live bet, and I probably will will be a sucker for it. I'll probably lose money. So you can really hit me where it hurts. Um, one last thing about college basketball, though. Speaking of the West Coast Conference, if you have not seen the video of the BYU Cougar being shot from the cheerleader's arms from basically like half court but in the corner of half court, so basically thinking you're like the scores table. If you haven't seen this video, he gets shot. The cheerleading squad throws him, and he ends up dunking the basketball. It's an insane video. It was viral on Saturday night. Um, you got to go check this thing out. But anyway, let's move on. Final category I want to talk about. Had some interesting scores throughout the NHL this weekend. And I got to talk about it because Friday or Thursday night, Friday's show, you heard me and Greg talk about the Flyers. I was pretty down because they lost to the Devils 5-0. Really made me feel bad because they played so shitty against a team that, granted, has been okay um, in the last week. They've beaten the Flyers, and they had a nice little win over the over the Los Angeles Kings, although that's not really saying much. But the Devils have, have, had, a, have had a couple upsets here and there. You know, so can't really be that upset. With a loss, but a 5 nothing loss you can be upset about. But anyway, um, Flyers Saturday night go to Washington, D.C. to take on the Capitals. Capitals are a very good home team. They always have been, especially against the Flyers. Brian Elliott didn't have the best night against the Devils. And sometimes against the bigger opponents on the road catches up to him. But the Flyers took care of business, guys. I couldn't be happier. 7-2 victory. A lot of different goals. Claude Giroux got his 800th point. 800th professional point. A guy who, you know, people want to say he's over the hill. People want to say he's a bad captain. I think that's all bullshit. I think he is still productive. He's moved to wing in the last year and a half. And he's been a great setup man for his different guys. Uh, The big story surrounding the game, though, was whether or not Alexander Ovechkin would hit his 700th goal. And a lot of different people were talking about it. Ivan Provorov was quoted before the game saying, you know, it would be cool to see him get to that number, but I don't want to see it against us. Which, kind of crazy. TJ Oshie ends up having a two-point night, including a power play goal. Kind of crazy that that uh, if a power play goal was going to be let up by the Flyers against the Capitals that it was Novechkin scoring. Uh, especially where Verana and Backstrom are involved, TJ Oshie obviously scoring. Um, but you got to give credit to 
to Elliott. You got to give credit to the Flyers' penalty kill for really getting it done against this team. Uh, the Flyers had, I'm trying to add it up, Yahoo's interface is so shitty. What the fuck? Uh, the Flyers had a lot of penalties, though, is what I'm getting at. So they had to kill a very powerful Washington power play. And, you know, all credit to them. They now go into this run where tonight they host the Panthers. I'm going to be at the game. So if you're listening to this before Monday night, subscribe to Thunderblog or follow Thunderblog Sports on Instagram and you'll see me there. Um, and that should be a really interesting game. The Panthers have had a good run themselves as of late. Both teams fighting for a playoff spot. And both teams are also fight the, the inconsistency bug. The Flyers, mainly it's on the road where their inconsistencies strike. And at home, they're very solid. They're now 18-9 and nine at the Wells Fargo Center. 18-5-4 and four if we're going to split hairs. Uh, the Panthers, though, a fairly good road team. You know, better than the Flyers, I'll, I'll say that. But they, they're currently riding a three-game skid. Bob has seen his ups and downs. Their offense is so solid, but their defense has had its struggles. Uh, and Bob is a part of that, too. So it'll be very interesting to see this game tonight. The big news for the Flyers, Katahat is coming back. Our boy is finally healthy. So hopefully that helps the Flyers get some anchoring in the back end, and, you know, maybe we see them start to solidify things here. We got to see what happens, though, with the rest of the Eastern Conference because it's been so solid. I, you know, I made the joke on, on Thursday night that the Flyers would be winning the Pacific Division. That still holds true now with Vancouver being so inconsistent. But, you know, teams like Carolina, who have been on a West Coast swing and end up having these huge wins, they go toe-to-toe with these teams like Vegas, they won 6-5 the other night in a shootout. And the fact that you're going toe-to-toe with a team like that, with such a solid goalie and such solid defense. I know Vegas has had ups and downs this year, but that's really good for Carolina. And they're, they're you know, that's a tough place to win in Las Vegas. They're a very good home team, just like the Flyers. So that's, you know, it's one of the teams battling there. The Islanders have had kind of a really tough middle stretch here where they've taken themselves from being solidly in that second position in the Metropolitan Division to now in a wild card because Columbus has been so hot. Uh, obviously, the Penguins have done so well, both without Crosby and now especially with Crosby back. Um, they've found themselves. They've also been on the, the swing of going to, you know, going down to Florida. They beat the Panthers the other day, uh, but they had to go to Tampa. They, I thought they were going to be a lot closer. I thought maybe they could pull it out, but Tampa has been white hot and all of a sudden, now finds themselves very close to becoming the class of the Eastern Conference again. They're only two points behind Washington for second in the East and second in the NHL, for for that matter. And the Bruins are up there at the tops of the NHL at 80 points. Um, And that's, before I jump over to other Western teams and Western scores, as much as it made me sad to see the Flyers lose 5-0 to the Devils at home, doesn't get tougher than being minus three three hundred on the road and losing to a historically bad Detroit Red Wings team, and that's what the Boston Bruins did yesterday, losing three one out there. That was a game. Looked over some of the lines on Sunday morning and saw that, and it was, you know, sometimes I see the the big line of a money line, and it's basically your base. You get negative odds on a puck line, and you're not even trying to pick a winner. You maybe even think, fuck it, should I just throw five bucks down on the dog and see if I just 
double, triple, quadruple my money. I almost could have done that. But even there, it's like, it's stupid. It's a fucking degenerate bet. And then you think, oh, maybe the over's the play, because in theory the Bruins should blast them, and maybe they let in a goal or two because they're on the road, and thank God you don't do that. Gotten burned on that a couple times in the last week. So I'm glad I didn't bet it. You know, and and it just shows, though, that any given, literally any given Sunday, any given day in the NHL, that professional athletes are going to be professional athletes and get it done. So it's not something to ridicule the Bruins on. Uh, it does make me, it reminds me of that they're all professionals here. So seeing the Flyers lose to the Bruins, I want to thank, Greg, thank you for your Bruins reminding me that it's not such a big deal to lose to a lesser opponent. So, Greg, all credit to you, because I know you're listening, even though it's not Monday morning. So, good job, Greg. But let's uh, let's quickly talk about some Western teams, because I want to mention some of them. The Colorado Avalanche have found themselves back in this position where I thought they could be, and I've been kind of waiting for them to do, for them to really figure out their struggles. And they've been on the road for a little bit. They were in Philly a couple weeks ago, or now almost a week, over a week ago, but had to play a back-to-back over the weekend. Saturday night, we're in one of the tougher places to play in the Metropolitan Division, and that is in Columbus. The Blue Jackets are a very good home team. They always have been, and especially since moving to the Metro. Um, But but the Avalanche got the job done. They won 2-1 there in a game where both teams can play defensive if they want to. I thought Colorado might be able to pull it out a little bit. Uh, But then last night, Sunday night, they go out to Minnesota, a team that, another team of inconsistency, but a team that you would think Colorado should shit pump. Uh, they only won 3-2. I thought maybe they could get it done. I threw some money down on the puck line on that. Got a, you know, a little little beat up there, but that's all right. I got made it back with some uh, basketball overs, but nonetheless. The Avalanche, though, are really starting to figure out their depth. Their goaltending is becoming more and more consistent. That wasn't really ever an issue for them, but it really is. Kale McCarr is a superstar. Talked about that a billion times. But that depth aspect, I think, is something that that is going to help this team out. And not that St. Louis being three and seven in their last ten games versus Colorado's seven and three is something of thinking. Oh, I knew it the whole time. Colorado's going to be. He's going to win the division. No, that's certainly not a guarantee. St. Louis is a very good team, and they've proven that by winning the Stanley Cup and picking up right where they left off. Maybe they could be, you know, a better road team. The Blues could, whereas Colorado is eighteen nine and two. Colorado, I guess, the only complaint is that you could say they could win more home games at fourteen seven seven four. But think about that. That is only twenty five home games out of fifty four. So in theory, as they play more home games, as they figure it out, as they get healthy, they're going to win. They're going to start winning those home games and make that their home ice advantage that we know that the Pepsi Center can be for the Colorado Avalanche. So I'm kind of penciling in a little bit St. Louis, Colorado in that first round. I do think, though, this becomes a situation of, like we talked about with the college football playoff, of who doesn't want to have to play Clemson? Who doesn't want to have to play Dallas? Because Dallas, we saw what they did last year to the Predators as a four seed to the to the division champion Predators. They're a tough out. They play very good defensive hockey, and it would be it, St. Louis would be fun to see because it's two teams that like to kind of bowl each other around. But Colorado playing Dallas might be interesting too because it's a high power team, pretty solid defense. 
versus a very solid defensive team that's going to grind you out and win that game 2-1, 3-1, 3-2, maybe even 1-0. And it's finding those two, you know, the, the rubber meeting the road, two heads colliding, whatever you want to say, seeing that in the playoffs, you know, it's why playoff hockey is so great. So the Central Division is one of the, the crazier storylines. I know the Pacific literally is separated by four points between fifth and first place. Arizona all the way up to Vancouver, even though Vancouver is ice cold. And while they're having a great year with Pedersen, Quinn Hughes, all these different guys, uh, they sadly had Brock Bezer go on the IL over the weekend, which is a tough one. He's obviously been very good, former Calder winner. Uh, so it's going to be fun to see how that all shakes out. Edmonton's starting to catch fire. They've gotten some crucial wins here and there. Vegas, I don't know what to think. We talked about it a little bit with that Carolina loss. They can score goals at will. Even with the goalie situation, that's you know they have good goalies on their roster, not just Mark Andre Fleury. Their defensemen have been kind of hmm. so maybe see them try to make a move at the trade deadline for a defenseman. Um, Calgary, man, their offense is not as fun as it should be. But can we get the Battle of Alberta in the playoffs? I hope so. And then Arizona is so young with some great vets on that team. I'm excited to see them in person later this week. So I'm going to wrap up the show with that. I mentioned it at the top, or in the middle, actually. But I'm going to be in L.A. for two days. I'm going out to Phoenix for my buddy's bachelor party. Um, I'm very excited for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to play some golf. We're going to go to the Capitals' Coyotes game. So expect to see some blog posts, or some uh, blog Instagram posts from... Arizona from LA too. I'm gonna to try to get some maybe some food instas. We threw one up yesterday at my post hockey lunch that I have with my teammates of that of the too much club sandwich. Uh, so maybe I'll try to get some of those out in LA. Definitely get some golf, some at the hockey game Instagram posts while well, I'm in Phoenix. So make sure that you subscribe to that Instagram, follow it Thunderblog Sports, just like the website thunderblogsports.com. Thunder B L G is the Twitter handle. The Facebook group, the Bullpen Cart Podcast, is what you need to search. Just join it. I post different polls of what you want to hear us talk about, stuff for adding questions. I know because of the inconsistent schedule that the questions got kind of tied up. But if you want to ask, post it there. Tweet at us, ThunderBLG. Tweet at me, Jordo9. Um, or just text me if you're one of my friends. But, you know, not everybody, not everybody has my phone number. But... Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate all the feedback. I know uh, I'm going to try to start getting them on Sunday because I'm flying back from Arizona. I'm landing around like 5 or 6 o'clock on Sunday night. So potentially we could get this thing out Sunday or record this Sunday night and get it out Monday morning for you. Um, I don't want to make a promise though because who knows with a full day of traveling from Phoenix. That might be tough. So I'll try my best. I do have to go back to work after that, so I might just want to rest up. But, again, I appreciate it, everybody. I appreciate all your patience. I appreciate all of your feedback. Thank you so much. Have a great one, and I will talk to you next week. Go Flyers.